This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. episode of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball it's a throwback show this week just myself tyler mon and one sam dykstra in new york city at mlb hq hi sam hi tyler yeah uh i was the one on mini vacation last week uh went up to go see our good friend you josh did jackson. you saw yes. our good pal josh jackson i got it a was- video from josh uh, on a hike, looked like a beautiful trail behind him. Then all of a sudden I see this shadowy figure moving into frame. And I thought, I recognize that walk. And then and it was Bigfoot in the and back. And I walked behind Bigfoot. <laughs> the best thing was, though, you stopped and you kind of looked and saw that Josh had his phone out. And you just gave this very nice wave. Like, I think you were like, what, what is Josh doing? I thought he was filming forward. And then I saw my figure move <laughs> in his camera. I'm like, oh, this is facing this way. Okay, cool. The guy you're hanging out with Sam. It seems like it was a good few days. It was awesome. It was awesome. I love seeing Josh, um, uh, you know, whenever I can. Wanted to go up there just more, mostly for the the nature of Maine. Uh, Josh, you know, on his Instagram posts enough about it that it was just yeah. basically like a Maine tourism board uh, Instagram page. Yeah. So I was like, I got to get me some Maine in my life. Uh, I know a few other people up that way, so it was great to to check in with them. But yeah, spending the whole day with Josh and, and talking about various things about life or our jobs, about baseball. Uh, it was great. Highly recommend Maine. Highly recommend Josh Jackson if he's available. Yeah, man. If you uh, if you get a chance to be friends with Josh Jackson, highest recommendation. Yes, it's pretty great. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I was out last week. Uh, ben was the one who posted the pod, and now Ben is out on vacation with his family. Um. So it's just me and you, Tyler. It is. It's just just the two of us. I actually uh I'm leaving town tomorrow, not for vacation, but. Uh, Home Run Derby X arrives in Fredericksburg, Virginia. If you are a Fred Nats fan or you are in the local Fred Nats area, I think we still have some tickets available for Home Run Derby X, which is coming up on Saturday night uh, and uh, coming out with me and uh, Jake Arrieta. Uh, who else? Johnny Gomes, Ian Desmond, Gerardo Parra. Those are the four who will be captaining the teams for Home Run Derby X. Uh, in 2023 there has to be a baby shark element with para there yeah no yeah i definitely think so i really hope so when we did it in hartford a couple weeks ago all the teams were the alternate identities of the hartford yard goats i really hope that gerardo para's team this week just gets to be the baby sharks i think that That would be lovely i'm sure there's all sorts of things we have to clear which is a theme of this episode we will get to later we will Um, we will gerardo para's team will not be the bubble boys but we will have a discussion of a game that involved a team named the bubble boys Uh, coming up here in just a little while. One of my favorite interviews in the 421 episode history of this podcast, Uh, Billy Harner, the assistant general manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones joins us to talk about his franchise's legendary Seinfeld night, which they held over this weekend. Uh, We went like 40 minutes in the interview. So at least 
because yeah, it's, it's not more fun. Yeah. Right. Um, I just, you know, I hijacked the whole thing and I'm okay with it. I feel like we've built up enough goodwill that I could just run this episode as long as possible talking about baseball and my favorite TV show of all time. Uh, you know, that's what nine years of doing this show, eight years of doing this show. I was just building up to this one interview and now I'm spending all of that capital and well, I'm going to get a call from Dan Marina. So it's like, eh, let's, uh, make it, make it professional from now on. No more Seinfeld <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I mean, they're two rich texts, right? That's, that's the beauty yeah. of them is that you can talk about baseball for hours as we literally have. And you can talk about Seinfeld for hours because there's just so many nuances to that. And the Cyclones did a tremendous job with that on Saturday. Um, that was the one bummer about me being out of town. I could not, not go, uh, to Seinfeld night, despite it being an F train away, uh, from my place of residence in Brooklyn. But yeah, it's crazy how uh, there's this phrase going around social media now called breaking containment. Basically the idea of like all these things exist in silos and there's baseball Twitter and there's minor league Twitter and there's you know movie Twitter, whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden it, something breaks through the zeitgeist. Ah. Being somebody who lives in New York City, seeing other people get excited for Seinfeld night and hearing the experiences of other people going. And people reaching out to me be like, oh, wait, you work in minor league baseball, right? What is the story with this? And getting to tell them that it's it's truly special. I, you know, I, I hope it's something that happens in minor league towns across the country. Uh, I just happen to live in New York City. So it's something I hear about a lot. Uh, Seinfeld night. But it is a true mark of success when it breaks containment. There's that phrase again. And isn't just a minor league thing. Isn't just a baseball thing. It's a true citywide event. Uh, and a great way to not close out summer, but, you know, in the in the waning days of summer, something that uh, everybody in this area and from all around the world. Billy was talking about this later or we'll talk about this later. How many people truly come out to Coney Island uh, for a Seinfeld night? So really special conversation that we're going to have here in a little bit. But first. We do have some other baseball stuff to do. We do get a chance to talk baseball. And uh, before we do, if you got any questions for us, podcast at MILB.com. You can get in touch with the show. Uh, send us your questions, your thoughts, your comments as we come up on the last month of uh, minor league baseball here in 2023 on the field, at least. And a um, lot to discuss on the field as of this week. And the biggest topic, the topic du jour is promotions to the double-A level for three of the top prospects in baseball, including two draft picks from 2023 who are already at the double-A level. Uh, there's also a draft pick from 2023 who is already in the big leagues uh, with the Los Angeles Angels, and that is wild. Uh, and yet, the Angels decided uh, that uh, Nolan Shonwell was set to go for uh, his big league debut, and so far, you know, he's been proving him somewhat right. He's got four hits in 14 uh, and 15 at-bats, which is pretty cool uh, for the 11th overall pick uh, this year out of Florida Atlantic University. But our topic of conversation, three players who are headed to the double-A level, uh, and those three are MLB's number three, number four, and number five overall prospect. Paul Skeens of the Pittsburgh Pirates, the top draft selection in the 2023 MLB first-year player draft. Dylan Cruz, the outfielder from the Washington Nationals, the second overall pick, and maybe the most stunning one and one of the most exciting prospects we've seen in a while, 17-year-old San Diego Padres catching prospect Ethan Salas, who is now up with the double-A San Antonio Missions. Uh, 17 is not an age in which you see guys play at double-A. And uh, Ethan Salas is now essentially 
theoretically one step, maybe one and a half steps from the big leagues. He is uh, not legally able to vote yet uh, in this country. (laughs) He's that close to Major League Baseball. Um, Sam, give us your thoughts. Start with whomever uh, you would like. We've got, uh, you know, Paul Skeens in Altoona, um, Dylan Cruz now in Harrisburg, and of course, Ethan Salas in San Antonio. Yeah, I'll I'll separate them this way i'll talk about skeins and crews later uh because they're a little bit less surprising we thought they were pretty advanced uh, i'll get into that in a little bit just because the solace one is so shocking i mean you go back to 2006 since 2006 there's been only one 17 year old to reach double a as michael de leon in the ranger system he played there for one game it was on an emergency basis they needed to call up a guy real quick have him fill in on the infield and he was sent right back down Ethan Salas is not being called up for only one game. In fact, in his double-A debut, he has already played one game. He got to play on Tuesday night, hit a walk-off hit in his double-A debut. It was his first double-A hit, um, so already proven clutch at that level. Uh, but it's it's shocking on its face to see Ethan Salas get here. Now, mind you, Ethan Salas was believed to be very advanced coming into the year. Um, he was the top international prospect on the international market uh, for the people, folks who were signing January 15th and onward. So we knew that the Padres could get aggressive with him. Uh, Speaking to some Padres folks in the spring, they say, hey, listen, this guy impresses us at every turn. They gave him a game in Major League Spring Training when he was still 16. Uh, He turned 17 later. Gave him a little bit of time. It extended. Normally, guys, when they sign in January 15th, they go to the Dominican Summer League. They get their feet wet there. They kept him stateside. So it's like, okay, that's interesting. He's skipping the Dominican complex level. And then they send him to single A Lake Elsinore. So he skips the Arizona complex league too. All right. Well, they they said he was always advanced. He's got a really good hit tool. He's already hitting for power. Uh, he's really advanced as a defensive catcher. He works well with pitchers. He frames really well. He's got a strong enough arm. He's bilingual. Um, He was actually born in the States, but moved to Venezuela. Um, He has a rich baseball history. His brother plays in the twin system. So, okay, I get it. You sent him single A. He does really well there. They kick him up to high A. Kind of understand that. Again, you want to be aggressive with your best prospects. The Padres have a history of doing this. Not a huge shock. He was at high A for nine games, or he played nine games at high A. Didn't do all that well, at least not as far as the numbers go. Um, so you're thinking like, okay, why kick him up to double a now? And, you know, he only hit 200 in those nine games. Didn't really slug much was slugging 229. So on field performance didn't really justify that move, but what the Padres have done, they've moved several prospects to double a San Antonio, Nathan Martorella, Jacob Marcy, Graham Pauly, Robbie Snelling, another top 100 prospect all moved up to double a big reason for that being. And I think is, this is key here is that San Antonio has already clinched a Texas League playoff spot. Fort Wayne, I think at the time of the call, it was a game and a half back. San Antonio had clinched one through the first half. So this isn't even like, oh, they might have to fight off some teams to make the postseason. They won their first half division title. They automatically go into the playoffs. Double A lasts a little bit longer than high A anyways. So if you're the Padres and you're looking at like, hey, everybody thought our system was destroyed after the Juan Soto trade. We've actually done a good job at developing some of these guys, a lot of which are playing their first full years in the system, and they're all progressing pretty well. We want them all together. Now, do we want them all together at high A, where it's only going to be for a few weeks, like two weeks? 
or do we want them at double A, which is going to be a challenge, but hey, they get to learn learn about each other, they get to grow with each other, and they get to play for a ring. They're playing meaningful games. That more matters more to us. Now, there's every chance, and I know, like I said, Ethan Salas already had the walk-off hit, so he's feeling somewhat comfortable at double A. There's every chance he hits a buck fifty against double A. That's a big jump. And it ruins his confidence, and it's a risk. It's a risk what the Padres are doing. Let's not pretend like this is them knowing exactly how it's going to go. I think they know that, hey, this is a guy we can get aggressive with. Hopefully it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But even if it doesn't, we like the makeup of the kid enough that he can learn from this and come back. So I don't even think it's a given necessarily that Ethan Solis being at double-A now means he's going to start out at double-A next year. I think he's still going to have to fight for that spot. I think a lot of this reminds me of, and I think we talked about this last year, Tyler, on the show, Project Birmingham, the Chicago White Sox. The White Sox did this exact same thing. They sent a lot of guys from single-A and high-A to double-A Birmingham with the idea of, you are our prospect core. You're all going to play together. Yeah. Right. You're going to learn how to do this all together. Yeah, and you're going to play for something. And, you know, it didn't quite work out. I mean, I think like Colson Montgomery was their top prospect now, really struggled at double A. But guess what? This year he's had an OBP right around 500. Um, He's been really, really good when healthy. So it can pay off with the really, really talented ones. And obviously they think they have somebody really talented in Ethan Salas, who will also be on that team with Jackson Merrill, another top 10 overall prospect. Um, That's the first time those two are going to be playing together ever. Uh, So, you know, there's, there's some value there. What the results are, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that's something that I really want to highlight and underline of this isn't just Ethan Salas has forced his way to double A. There's some other factors that go into it. When you uh, look at Ethan Salas, obviously his road developmentally is so different from Dylan Cruz, from Paul Skeens. Those guys were just playing in the College World Series, uh, you know, two months ago. And yet, playing and winning. Playing and college. winning. And yet uh, the challenge is really similar. It's similar um, in terms of going to a a level where you're going to face some of the best competition in baseball that early in your careers. It's very different in the fact that, and we always talk about this with college players. Those guys really started their season effectively in January. You get in, you start practicing, getting set for your year. Uh, College season starts in February. You're playing through June. You win a national championship. Then all of a sudden you jump into pro ball. This is August now. This is nine months into a season basically for those guys. And they are playing the most difficult competition that they've seen this year. Uh, How do you look at those two promotions? Yeah. I mean, uh... On both sides, it's like you were saying, like playing in the SEC, which is a loaded conference, the most loaded conference in college baseball, that's much closer to high A or even double A than I think a lot of people think. Um, So conquering those levels like they did or conquering that conference, then playing meaningful baseball uh, deep into the spring before they went pro in the College World Series. These guys are proving it left and right. I mean, they can handle double A ball right now. I think the interesting thing for... Their call-up is Skeens was at single-A, Bradenton. Uh, you look at how much he had pitched. He pitched one game in the Florida Complex League. It was only one inning. First game with Bradenton, one inning. Second game with Bradenton, two innings. He's been dominant, but it's you know very short stints. A guy who can touch triple digits and has a wicked slider, you'd expect him to do really well in an inning here and there or even two innings. And he's yet to give up a run. He's only given up one hit. He hasn't walked anybody. He's got five strikeouts. It's working so far. But why skip him over high A? Why not send him to Greensboro? And this is also going to tie into what I'm going to say about Dylan Cruz. Greensboro, for the Pirates high A affiliate, is extremely hitter friendly. 
So if you're looking at Paul Skeens and you think, hey, this guy we think can handle double A anyways, let's not send him to a high A affiliate where there's a potential that he gives up a fly ball that ends up a home run through no fault of his own. And let's like ding his confidence a little bit going into his first offseason. Like there's no upside in that for us. We sent him to double A. Tyler, you've been to Altoona. It's it's a much fairer park. Yeah, very uh, much so. Yeah. So we give him a fighting chance from that aspect. We think the stuff is going to play. It's only small bites anyways. On the Dylan Cruz side, guy destroyed the ball at Fredericksburg. He's playing every day. He's not a pitcher. So it's not like you're wasting bullets as much. Um, but then, you know, looking at high A Wilmington, complete other end of the spectrum. is extremely pitcher friendly. And you send him to high A. The Nats are loaded with outfielders right now anyways. It, it's going to be tough to get playing time. But you send him to Wilmington, there's every chance as good a hitter as Dylan Cruz is, he hits 220 and he starts questioning himself, maybe tries to make adjustments that he doesn't need to make. Goes to Harrisburg instead, much fairer ballpark. Um, and and kind of similar to the Ethan Solace issue, now Dylan Cruz is playing in an outfield with James Wood, another top 10 overall prospect, and Robert Hassel III, a former top 100 guy who we've let slip a little bit. But those are three really, really good outfielders who could easily in two years' time, be the Nats' starting outfield. So you get those guys playing together now, and even if it's just for a few weeks, get those guys to know each other. Uh, there was a picture floating around of them sitting in the dugout together. The smile James Wood had on his face talking to Dylan Cruz was like so excited uh, that he got to play with, with this guy. The first game, it was Hassel and left, Cruz in center, Wood and right. I think they're going to rotate those guys all around. All three of them are capable of playing center. Um, all three of them are capable of moving around a little bit. I think Hassel is a better fit in left than he is in right. But the, they, the more cover you can get them, the better. The more they can play together, the better. And Dylan Cruz's hit tool is so advanced uh, and his approach so advanced that he's going to handle double A pretty easily. The question might be, with both Skeens and Cruz, like, I think they could debut in the first half. I kind of wonder if the Nats would even consider Cruz starting out the year in the majors next year. Um, with the way that it's you're incentivized to get your prospects to the major league team earlier now um, because of the potential for that if Dylan Cruz competes for a rookie of the year spot or an MVP spot before he hits arbitration, you get an extra pick, and that's pretty big. So Dylan Cruz is talented enough. We'll see how this double-A stretch goes, but uh, it's it's two different animals. Like we, If you told me when Skeens and Cruz got drafted that they would end the year in double-A, I wouldn't be shocked. If you told me when Ethan Salas signed at 16 that he would end the year at double A, I'd be like, what happened? What yeah. what went on here? <laughs> and there's just a lot of other yeah. factors to consider beyond just on-field performance. But all three of these guys are extremely skilled, and I think all of their organizations want to test them because of that. It really is like uh, it never gets any less fun. You know, watching the way prospects climb, watching how different organizations choose to challenge different guys. Like it's, it's so fascinating. And every year it brings something new, like Ethan Sows, where it's all of a sudden you've got a 17 year old as a, an everyday guy at double a, and it shows you what the Padres think of him and what everybody else seemingly who was coming to contact with Ethan Salas thinks of him, that he is just, if anybody can handle it as a catcher in double a at 17 years old, he's that dude. And that's really, really cool to see. Yeah, and it, it is a risk. I, I I do want to keep coming back to that Definitely. too. Like I, I I'm a big Ethan Solace fan, but there's every chance that he goes to Double A, sees some pitching that he's never seen. He will. Right. He definitely will, and that could ruin his approach. He could fall into some bad habits, um, all that kind of stuff. It's it's a risk that they're taking. 
but it's a fun one. You you say, Tyler, like that's the most fun part of this job isn't knowing things. It's being surprised because you can study baseball as much as you want. Some things are going to happen that you didn't expect. Uh, and I love that stuff because it's an opportunity to learn. And, you know, maybe by the time there's another Ethan Solace rolling around, we, we won't be as shocked. But then again, maybe there will never be another Ethan Solace. And yeah, this is the, absolutely. the start of a all-time career. We'll, we'll have to find out together. All right, Sam. It is time to dive into the world of the greatest television comedy that's ever existed. As uh, we turn our sights to Coney Island in Brooklyn, the home of the Cyclones, uh, as well as the lengthy subway trip that Kramer describes on how to get to Brooklyn, how to get to Coney Island. And then Elaine says, and this is back in a previous era of New York subway mapping and and numerical letter values. But I think she says, couldn't you just take the double R straight to Coney Island? And Kramer goes, well, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of a, a deep cut scene that you might have to go find. Uh, but Billy Harner from the Brooklyn Cyclone joins us to talk Seinfeld night coming up next. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, there are few things in uh, baseball and in minor league baseball that excite me as much as being able to unite multiple favorite topics of mine. And one of those is baseball and the other is Seinfeld. And uh, with that, we get to pivot to arguably the greatest promotional night or series of promotional nights in the history of not just baseball, but let's say human civilization. And we bring on the assistant general manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones, Billy Harner, to join us to talk about Seinfeld Night 2023. Billy, it's good to see you, man. How are you? I am terrific. I'm going to have to bring you around like my hype man whenever I go. That's some <laughs> intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, this is uh, a promo that's been going on for a while. You guys sort of set the standard. You kind of kicked off, I feel like, the uh, the night tonight um honoring the the tributes to a single pop culture thing uh with Seinfeld night when you initially did it um what was the first year for Seinfeld night tell us about the genesis of this uh so the first year we did was 2014 um and at that time we were a short season affiliate so we played from June until September um and it was right around New Year's uh the New York Newsday puts out uh, a special section of upcoming pop culture anniversaries which has basically become my bible over the years um, I sit in there and, and I, I scroll through it and try to find stuff. And we were having one of our staff meetings and it was brought up that it's the 25th anniversary for Seinfeld. And I said, well, obviously we have to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing that, um, you know, I love and it's sort of 
you know, like a, a religion here in New York. So it's a very New York centric show, obviously, and and, and uh, very popular here in, in Brooklyn. Um, so we said, all right, we're, we're going to do this. How are we going to do it? So the first thing we thought of uh, was the Keith Hernandez connection to the show and we're a Mets affiliate. So obviously, um, you know, we have some connection there as well. So we reached out to Keith and explained, hey, we want to do a Seinfeld night. We're looking to do a magic loogie bobblehead. And he just started laughing. Um, and away we went. You know, it was the first year, you know, we, I knew I was going to have fun with it, which is, is uh, you know, what, what was most concerning to me to make it different from the other, at that point, 38 games. So um, we put it out the first year. Um, Boomer and Carton was the morning show here in New York on WFAN. Uh, and we sent it over to them in the morning um, with the expectation, hey, maybe I'll talk about this. And I literally sent it at, you know, 530 in the morning, went back to bed, woke up and had 100 emails and 40 messages and was like, oh, my God, what did I do? Something terrible has happened. <laughs> um, but it turned out it was the opposite. And then people were super into it. And, um, you know, it was on Mike and Mike on ESPN. And, um, you know, everybody wanted to get the, the renderings of it and the, the pictures of it and, you know, talk to somebody about what we had planned. And um, that day turned into be a very different day than I expected when I first saw all those missed calls and, and voicemail. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And that first year we had people come from 26 different states and seven different countries. And, um, you know, the a guy came from Canada and slept in his car and overslept. So he wasn't the first guy in line, which I thought was very appropriate for a Seinfeld theme. <laughs> Um, it was John Paul, John Paul, the exactly. He got the AMP. I'm wrong or something. <laughs> uh, so, it was the volume. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was just everything sort of just came together perfectly that first year, and it was a ton of fun. And uh, we've been building ever since from from 2014. All right, um, Sam. I'm just going to tell you right now, this interview is going 90 minutes. Um, <laughs> Billy, when you guys kick this off, it is sort of weird to think about this this way, but that was a, it's so crazy to talk about 2014 in this manner, but that was a different era of minor league promotions. Like having a night dedicated specifically to one pop culture thing was not extremely common back then. Like Seinfeld night was a fairly um, unique endeavor uh, in its own right. And now since then it's like every week is, is something different for a different minor league team, whether it's a, a Sandlot promotion or a Jurassic park promotion or whatever it is. Um, but you guys set a bar very high that first year. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned, especially knowing how much it took off before you actually got a chance to host the night? Um, coming up with the various different elements of it, what were things that you learned that you've been able to take through now almost a decade of doing Seinfeld nights? Um, so from from the first year, obviously, we sort of under uh, undersold ourselves on how popular it was going to be. Uh, so we realized that this was a staple and this was something that we had to do. Even if we didn't want to do it anymore, we still have to do it every single year. Um and then we found different, you know, ways to use the ballpark. Um, you know, we this year we had um, the Del Boca Brooklyn rooftop, which had um, themed foods from Seinfeld. So there was babkas and beefaroni and Kenny Rogers roasted wings kind of stuff. And we sold that as a Seinfeld specific area. We had um, uh, a tent with John O'Hurley underneath it, and he was doing photos and, and appearances. We did uh, packages for, um, you know, a, a guaranteed item, you know, so the lines get pretty long for these things. So we had 2,500 general giveaways and we had 2,500 other people who guaranteed the item by paying a little bit more of a, of a premium for it. So we, in the first year we did it and, you know, we ordered the bobbleheads and um, 
if you didn't get one, you know, sorry, like, you know, we wish we could have gotten more and we sort of learned from that. So it's become, we try to get as many items in the hands as, as we can for people, because we know that's such a big part of, uh, of what the night has become. And people love to keep it on their desks and show it off on Instagram and all that stuff. So, um, that was a big lesson. Um, you know, the, the bit characters on the show, um, aren't necessarily bit characters, I guess, you know, like they have big roles, even though they have, you know, are only in one or two episodes. Um, so we've had Larry Thomas, obviously, who was the, the, the soup Nazi. We had Phil Morris, who was Jackie Childs. We've had Steve Heitner, who was Kenny Banya. Um, we've had Bizarro Jerry. Uh, we had Jean-Paul Jean-Paul, who was here. Um, you know, like, so all these people that are in, you know, a handful of episodes, like people go nuts for them. Um, and just the connections to the, the the show are really have been fun. You know, the one year we had Jean Paul Jean Paul, we did a uh, Mr. Bevilacqua point five k, and it was one lap around the, the the warning track. And the actual guy who was Mr. Bevilacqua, like the actual gym teacher, like reached out to us and wanted to come to the game. And I was like, this is ridiculous, That's incredible. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that has just sort of perfectly um happened to us you know like it makes us look like we're i'm crawling through the weeds trying to find people but a lot of this stuff has just been dumb luck to be honest with you um and it's just worked out perfectly and then there's no no small part you know we've we've had last year we had donna chang come um which is one episode and she's probably not taking advice from some woman (laughs) from long island right right so we had you know she was probably in eight minutes of the show total um so and she came here last year and drew a crowd of people as well so um everybody has their favorite episode everybody has their favorite characters so we're trying to tap into as many of them as possible um and although we'd love to have any of the the big four obviously but we've uh sort of made our 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 living on this with sort of the the ancillary characters yeah and you're you're talking about how so much of this has kind of just happened to you guys where you guys announced tonight and people are reaching out to you but i got to give you guys credit for like especially this year the marine biologist episode might be like the most quoted episode for me and my friends growing What's up. What's so funny that that is you said everybody has their favorite episode. That's my favorite episode. That and the Merv Griffin show episode. Yeah. The, I so mean, the, out of a thousand of favorites, those are my favorites. Yeah, me and my friends, we used to play golf every Friday after work, and one of us would have a titleist, and have we would to. just hold it up to the other one and say, "Titleist, huh?" We would never get a hole in one, but we would pretend that we had hit it into a whale. Um, so that was your guys' bobblehead this year. I mean, how much? As you guys have seen this get more and more popular, how much are you planning ahead for the future of like, this could be a bobblehead, this could be a bobblehead, this could be a shirt, or is it just year by year? Uh, I spent a lot of time in traffic on the Belt Parkway, um, (laughs) and I let my mind wander as to, you know, it'd be funny if we did this. Um, And it's a lot of a lot of my stuff. I have like a notepad in my passenger seat that I write random stuff down. And also like Seinfeld, I can't read it sometimes. So I forget what I was thinking. Um, But, you know, so this year. Um, so just a, a little backtrack. So last year we, when we had our Seinfeld night, um, the Elaine dance contest went viral on social media. Um, and the Monday after the, the, the Seinfeld night, I got a phone call from the Seinfeld marketing people from, um, Sony. And I was like, Oh God, cease and desist. I'm going to jail. This is over. <laughs> we had a good run. That'd be this my first thought too. Right. And I, you know, I expected to, you know, go on to a zoom with this guy and it was going to be a conference room filled with lawyers. Um, 
And I got on and the guy was like, I just wanted to let you know that everything you guys do is great. And we love what you're doing. And uh, we were watching the video this morning and we just wanted to connect. So you guys know, like we're on board, whatever you want us to help with, we'll do it. And I was like, I've had an outer out of body experience. I thought like this was going one way and it went a completely different way. So that conversation, I said, all right, so here's what I want to do next year. I want to do a, uh, a George Costanza, the art of seduction bobblehead. And they thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, all right, so this is what we're going to do. Uh, and the idea, you know, it went to the proper channels and it was decided that was a little too risky, a little risque. Right for a, a family friendly minor a league ballpark, white boxer brief bobbleheads, right? A, a, a stout, uh, chubby man, right? It, the camera loves stoutness, but <laughs> we couldn't, we couldn't. It was <laughs> uh, against my better judgment. I decided we probably shouldn't go this way. So, um, you know, we went back and forth a few different times and uh, we came up with the marine biologist, you are on the beach, and you know, all that stuff. So, I it, it ended up being. At first, it was a killer whale, and we had to remove that and make sure that it was the 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 blue whale, which is you know from the show, to make sure things were were correct as possible. So, um, you know, now we're already on to ne- next year's the thirty fifth anniversary of when the the show debuted. Um, so I've had two or three ideas that I'm hoping to to talk to them about in the next few days to get things started for next year and uh, try to top ourselves, you know, once again. Well, I'm just saying, you know, maybe this is softening the ground to bring, you know, the art of seduction into, you know, enough people listen to this and reach maybe. out to the cyclones and say, hey, I, w- I would come out. Um, maybe but, we can blur the face, you know, maybe a little like PG. That way, there I we guess. go. There we go. Um, one thing I'm interested too is that you guys, not only did you guys have specialty uniforms this year when you guys were playing as the pretty boys, you also got Hudson Valley to buy in with the bubble boys. They were the Wappingers Falls bubble boys. What was it like trying to reach out to the Renegades and be like, hey, you guys want to because they're a New York area to, team, too. I'm sure they're in on it. But like it's a promotion for a, an away game essentially on there. What what makes that even better, too, is that that is essentially where the bubble boy would have lived because he was like slightly upstate. Right. They, they mentioned something about the falls on that episode. So I took that and said, well, it's got to be Waffinger's Falls. <laughs> of course. So, obviously. Yeah. Right. The I mean, there's, there's no other falls. Everybody talks about <laughs> Waffinger Falls like you're going to the Hamptons. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, they were great. You know, we had the idea, uh, we were able to put together the, the, the logos and sent it up to them for approval. And, you know, they had the idea of potentially doing like a home and home thing. Um, but the process of getting everything approved and getting the jerseys produced was not conducive for that. Like the jerseys arrived like four days before our game. So, um, we couldn't really do a, a home and home thing. Potentially that's something we could do, you know, going forward. Cause like you said, they're a New York area team. They're a Yankees affiliate. There's obviously Yankees connections to to the show as well. So um, they were great about it. We sent it over to their their general manager, and he um, you know got approval from the the Yankees. And um, you know the jerseys are going towards uh, charity efforts. You know here in the in the New York area. So um, you know it's just fun. You know the, the best part about minor league baseball is that we all like to have fun, and you know we don't take ourselves too seriously. So. Um, We've had a great relationship with Hudson Valley. Haven't been in the Penn League with them prior to to the South Atlantic League, so uh, we've done some some good stuff back and forth. So they were awesome to deal with, and and uh, uh, the day itself, you know, their coaches and players got into it too. So it was, it was just a great day all around. What's so weird is like now there are, uh, and this makes me feel so ancient to say, but now like everybody on these rosters. 
they weren't even born when Seinfeld was on the air. So what is the reaction from players like? I would imagine, you know, coaches, player development people, people in front offices are going to be excited about it. But if you are a player, like for us, that would be the equivalent of wearing jerseys from like MASH, you know, like stuff that wasn't on TV when we were born or when we were really little. What are players' reactions like? Yeah, you know, 20-year-old guys from Santo Domingo aren't necessarily sitting around watching Seinfeld on the regular. So um, there, there's a little, you know, explanation to, you know, this is what we're doing. And, and it's something that we've done for the last, you know, pretty much a decade. We skipped a year for for COVID. But the first year we did it, we had the guys take batting practice in puffy shirts. Um, and none of the players had, like, seen an episode of it. Uh, and we knew we had all these media requests from people all over the place. So... Uh, they went on a road trip and I gave them like a Seinfeld DVD box set. And I was like, hey, just watch the puffy shirt episode so you can at least speak sort of knowledgeably, like about at least specifically that episode. Um, and they were going up to, I think, Burlington, Vermont to play the the Lake Monsters. And um, I gave them, you know, a box set and they apparently watched it like the whole trip back and forth or something like that. So um, I, I started off trying, here's 20 minutes of uh, a low talker and a puffy shirt and just just play along um, and you know they sort some of them got into it so it ended up being a lot of fun uh, but yeah I mean most of it, it's become sort of now that like streaming is is such a thing and it's on Netflix like a lot of them um, don't have cable in their apartments and you know when they're in spring training they have some downtime so a lot of them have sort of seen it now in this second generation of I guess uh, with streaming and things but uh, so that becomes a little bit easier but in the beginning like literally we were like hey we're gonna have 7,500 people here tomorrow and they're all gonna be screaming watching people eat snickers with knives and forks um so you need to know something about what's going on <laughs> this is the greatest this is great. we've done 420 episodes of this podcast i feel like i can just we've built up enough goodwill that i can just be like sorry this is the seinfeld night episode and now we're just <laughs> gonna go for an hour billy i hope you had no plans today um seinfeld has such an interesting relationship with the mets and yankees because jerry seinfeld himself famously a big mets fan in the show he's a yankees fan even though at the beginning of the show he's a mets fan in the pilot, he makes a comment about not ruining the end of the Mets game because he taped it. Uh, and then Kramer, who is then known as Kessler in the pilot episode, comes in, says, oh, the Mets blew it tonight. What is the Mets reaction to this? Because this really is like the perfect promo tie. Outside of Scranton Wilkesbury doing stuff with The Office, this is such a perfect tie-in because you are New York City's minor league team. Uh, you know, the, Coney Island is referenced in Seinfeld multiple times. Um, when the the Mets get to buy into this, or Keith Hernandez gets to buy into it, Buck Showalter was in an episode of Seinfeld and has complained about having to sign royalty checks uh, for, you know, the 30 years since he was been in that episode. Um, how cool is it seeing the way that the organizations themselves react to this? It's awesome. I mean, like, it, this is sort of what we've become known for. You know, like, when we get our schedule, it's, all right, when's opening day? And then for fans, it's when Seinfeld night. Like, that is the immediate question. Like, our schedule is going to come out soon. And if I don't have an answer, like, there's going to be pitchforks and, and flames at the front gates. Like, it's, I need to, like, have this sort of in, in motion already. Um, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's cool seeing all, you know, like, a lot of other teams in minor league baseball have started to do it. The Mets have done. They did a Seinfeld night where they had the Jerry bobblehead a few years ago. Um, we obviously have a little more freedom to, you know, do weird stuff like the ass man balloon popping contest in between innings. I don't think that would fly at city field. Um, you know, having the, the poppies, a little sloppy contest, you know, like the, the minor league baseball aspect of it is what makes it so perfect for us, but it is, it's really cool to see 
you know, big league affiliates like the Mets get in, you know, they've, they've done it and had success with it as well. Um, you know, Jerry threw out a first pitch for their night a few years ago and it went on Netflix um, and seeing these other minor league teams get, get involved. Uh, the, it's just, you know, when somebody has a good idea, it's a, it's a good idea. You know, it doesn't, it's not our thing. It's an everybody thing. So uh, one of my favorite things about this whole, you know, year two, I think we did a, a two or three, I don't remember. They all sort of blend together at this point, but we did a second spitter bobblehead and Roger McDowell was the pitching coach for the Braves. And I went over there and we did like a video, like it was going to be like, a, you know, like, like an office ISO cam where we were going to have him finally admit that he was the second spitter. And um, we got there and I was like, all right, here's the script. This is what we'd like you to say. And he looked at it. He's like, I'm not going to say that. And I was like, okay. And he was like, I, this is going to go down in, it, it, it going to go down with the ship. I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit that I was the He's second spitter. He's never admitting that he was the second spitter <laughs> on the like, gravelly you know road. You're absolutely right. You are 1000% right. This should not be a thing. You should take this to the grave. So that's what we did. We did the video. It says, I bet you all think you know what happened that evening on the gravelly road. But I'll never admit to it. And like we showed the video in that really park. is so much better. One hundred percent. One hundred. We showed the video in park, and people went nuts. And uh, you know, we've had the woman who is on the episode where the he's running a car, and she can take the reservation but not hold the reservation. She was doing a Broadway, like an off-Broadway play in the city. So we had her do a commercial for us one year, saying that don't worry if you order tickets with the Cyclones, they will take and hold your reservation. You can pick up your tickets at will call, like. Just all these little ridiculous things just come up perfectly. <laughs> this is my new favorite interview on this podcast. <laughs> um, Billy, when you uh, you get to, you know, go deeper. and de- The thing about Seinfeld is like it is the show that keeps on giving for a promotion like this because you could come mm-hmm. up with a million ideas. You could stretch this this promotional idea out uh, for years and years. And um, it's it's crazy because you would think. Oh, yeah, if you could get one of the big four, that would be amazing. If you could get Michael Richards or Julia Louis-Dreyfus or Jason Alexander or Jerry Seinfeld, obviously that would be incredible. I also sort of feel like it would almost not draw back in a way, but it would overshadow everything else that you do about Seinfeld Night. The fact that you're able to bring in the guy who played Kenny Banya, that for fans of the show who are the people showing up for games, that's almost more amazing to them, I would imagine, uh, than being able to see, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Um, is there a thought process in like, all right, we got to see how obscure we can get with with some of these characters? Like, has there been, have you reached out, tried to find somebody that like people would never remember and it's either gone right or maybe somebody's been like, nah, I'm, I'm off of that. I have a buddy who did an interview with the actor who played Kenny Banya for a different project at one time. And he was like, don't ask me about Seinfeld. Like these are actors who want to do something else in their careers. And yet they're so heavily tied to that. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had some, um, you know, the, the guy who, um, when George has to get the calzones, and Kramer pays and, and changed the guy that was like, how do I know guy. about cooking a shirt? Huh? <laughs> right. Right. That guy, we, at one point we were trying to get him to come just for like a calzone eating contest. Like that was, that was a one-time thing. He's um, on screen for like 18 seconds. In right. the show. That's amazing. Yeah. Just like, cause, but that's, that's the other part of this is that like, there's no like casual Seinfeld fans. Like there, right. there's very few of them. Yeah. Like if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know, every episode and every reference and which is also sort of daunting. I don't know for, what you're talking about. You and I are very much not that way, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So it's very daunting to have like, you know, if you mess up a line or you do something wrong, like if 
if George is signing with his left hand for a check and he should have been signing with his right, like we'll hear about it. People so, will drag you for that. Right. So it's it's a little intimidating to do that. But, you know, we've reached we've had basically anybody who's alive and was on the show. Like we've reached out to them to try to do something like I've been trying to get Babu to come and do a bobble finger for 10 years. Like we had uh, Jimmy, you know, I wanted to do a Jimmy dunking with strength shoes on. Uh, you know, we've done all of these things. Uh, so like I, I I love the the obscure. Um I like I've we we try to push the envelope a little bit with the obscurity of it. But um yeah, you know, like the episodes are so loved that even the obscure aren't really obscure, you know, like John Paul Jean Paul is in one episode and probably on screen for five minutes and everybody knows Jean Paul Jean Paul, you know, like there's just uh, there's no small characters on that show. So um, even the small roles still have a, a, a lifetime afterwards. Have you heard from any of the big four? Like uh, you heard from the marketing department and that's awesome. Have you ever gotten even through like, you know, I'm acting as though this is like something during the Cold War, even through like <laughs> diplomatic back channels. Have you gotten like a message from Michael Richards? Like, I really appreciate the, all the honors. Uh, you know, we, the Jerry has a relationship with the Mets. So we've sort of like, um, you know, had some in the beginnings, you know, some, uh, back channel conversations, I guess, where, you know, they were give us their, you know, the blessing of what we were doing. Um, the coolest thing potentially from, from this year was, um, Spike Ferriston who wrote so many of the episodes, um, including the Elaine dancing episode, including the soup nazi episode he um sent us a dm like two days ago and he wants to come and judge the elaine dancing contest next year oh and that's awesome like i was losing my mind like this is the coolest thing that could <laughs> possibly happen and you know being one of the three people in the office that's old enough to actually have seen the show um nobody else was understanding how cool this is um but I was like, I just we just got a DM from this guy. He's gonna come next year. He's gonna, this is amazing. Um, so that the episode with the Elaine dancing contest wants to come and judge the Elaine dancing contest. So that's that's a, a pretty cool full circle moment for us for sure. Yeah. I th- now that for some and I don't mean to like jump over him, but like for some reason the idea of Larry David judging a contest just sit, sitting back <laughs> and just being like, not for me. Yeah, nope. just no. right. So but you can just only, say no to everybody. You can only shoot him from behind, and he has to be right. doing the whole same hand motions that he. Yeah, has. there we go. Ryan Brenner and the guy from uh, Tyler Chicken. Yeah, yeah. that's and, if you ever get Larry David, you can only use him from behind. Right, we it's find one walk. winner, and he just goes, "I was blown away." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about how successful this has been and how cool all the references are, but you guys got your biggest crowd since 2015. Eighty one hundred people showed up. Uh, for this year and then several of them I think it's several thousand stayed for the Elaine dancing contest I mean what is it like when you know you've just retained an audience like that and what is it about that dancing contest that's that seems to really have stuck uh it's so it started from the very beginning the first year we had Seinfeld line I think we lost 17 to 3 or like it was something that was like a football score where we got absolutely destroyed and nobody left like everybody stayed because we had the Elaine dancing contest and we had everybody runs the bases, but if you're Jerry, you get a head start. And everybody stayed. And we had all these people watching the Elaine dancing contest and it's grown and grown and grown and grown. Like 
we like my my dream with this thing and steve cohen who's our vice president here we've talked about it we want to get like the guy who does the nathan's hot dog intros like george shea we want to get him to do like an intro like video for all these women that when they go out and dancing on the on the field um but it's a crazy it's a crazy thing for what we do where you know we try to plan everything around the baseball game and you know we try to keep people entertained um and for a night like this where uh we won it was a great game it was exciting we won eight to seven and then the game's over and the same thing nobody leaves there was probably about a 30 35 minutes because we had a lot of people in the contest this year um and they're all sitting in their seats stand or more, more likely standing up screaming and um being a part of it you know like it's it's a surreal feeling like in, there, there's thousands of people watching just people dance poorly like it's not it's not anything to do with the baseball game. It's, you know, it's, it's, we're not doing anything. We're just playing a song and then the fans are providing the entertainment. Um, so it's a, it's, it's wild. Like I, I said this year, I was sitting with Kevin Mahoney as your general manager. The two of us were sitting on the field. Um, and I said, I felt like I'm in the Roman Coliseum because people are booing mercilessly when some people's doing something, they're <laughs> doing something wrong. Somebody they didn't like people did something great. They were cheering. You know, there was one time where we thought it was a, it was a pretty close in the fan voting. So one guy or one person won and another guy lost and they started booing. So we decided, all right, he's the wild card. Like, all right, he's, he's, he's <laughs> he moves on to the finals. Like it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's phenomenal. And I mean, like we've had, I looked at some of the videos on, on social, like there's a, a video of people dancing poorly that has 9 million views like from our, from our game on, uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And it's, it's surreal, you know, but it just goes, it's the, probably the thing that's the most popular that we do as part of it. It's the one thing that if we got rid of, you know, there would obviously be a noticeable um, backlash from, from the fans that typically come, but uh, it's literally like we have, I, I have nothing to do with it. This year, uh, this year I bought a trophy for nine ninety nine, and we wrote a lane dancing winner on it. And that was what they got in the past. We bought like a toy wrestling belt and I taped a big salad to it. And that was the, the, the prize that they got. So that's the extent of what we do. And it's really the fans that make it so fun and, and memorable. All these people that come in, in costume and um, different eras of a, of a lane. Um, and Big wall of hair. Them. Right. Yeah. Some of them are do like the fl the flowy flowery dresses. Some of them are corporate Elaine. Some of, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's really cool to, to see people get so into it. I have well, to ask kind you of, a mechanical question real quick about the dancing contest is, do you just play that, that when you wish upon a star song for the entire thing? So it's like 30 minutes of whatever that song is. So we do breaks to reset every now and then, but it is, it's, it's that, <laughs> that you're, you're star for the entire time. It's yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day with I've got you, babe, but it goes on for, <laughs> it's, it's 30 minutes of, of that same song pretty much. Yeah. Well, so for the people who shot the show, that was like one day of filming, if that. It might have right. been half a day. They were moving on to other scenes. You've gone through nine years of this, eight games, not counting COVID. Mm -hmm. What makes a good Elaine dancer? Who who wins? Like what what and all the winners that you've had, what what has been the consistency? So the the, the costumes really are key. In the beginning, we had um, you know, a woman dancing with holding juji fruits. Uh, we've had women that wear Orioles caps uh to, to the game um yeah the the, the dresses and the, but it's the the people that um you could tell aren't taking themselves too seriously and are you know love just are having fun you know like they they know what they're they're doing and 
they'll do the the little kicks and they'll do the dry heaving set to music and all that stuff and it's uh it's it's big it's really is crazy like you know this this year we had a finals of i think six six people there was five women and and a guy ralph who's one of our season ticket holders um and they're all in costume and they're all doing sort of the same thing but they put their little their little tweaks to it there's you know a woman who got so so into it she fell down to the ground and uh was doing like a little james brown it was uh it's fun i mean they're just I think the fact that we do a post game so people have a couple beverages during the game and loosen up a little bit makes it a big difference. If we did it in the fourth inning, I don't think it would have the same effect. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the costumes, it's the uh, the off rhythm. You know, like it's it's very hard to be as off rhythm as she was on the show. So to be you know kicking on the on the downbeat or whatever, it's a uh, it's a special talent to be that off rhythm. So there's a so that's those are probably my my two. Uh, if I was going to give you some cheat sheets as to how to how to win the twenty twenty four lane dancing contest, it would be come in costume and and try to lose all sense of rhythm. All right. Well, I think Tyler and I need to try this next year. <laughs> Tyler, I will pay for your flight. I will. To come out. I will say, uh, my the very first year that you guys did this was my second year since uh, leaving the minor leagues as a radio guy. It was actually the year. Uh, it was the year before we started the podcast, but it was the year that Sam and I started working together. And um, a guy who is my best friend here, uh, he sent me some story about it and was like, hey, you think you got to hook up to get me this bobblehead from this 2014 Seinfeld night? Um, and, you know, yesterday I'm walking out of the house to go do some yard work. My fiance, not a, a massive minor league baseball fan or follower. She goes, oh, did you see this? The the Brooklyn Cyclones did a lane dance. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I did see that. I do know about that. So it's something that really does transcend the average minor league fan. I mean, it's something where, you know, you think of, oh, the, you know, the isotopes, that's a, a Simpsons tie-in. Lehigh Valley, Bacon, uh, you know, Seinfeld night is the Brooklyn Cyclones. Like you guys have, um, that is your thing. And it's so tied to that organization. What does that mean to you, Billy, as being somebody who was the, you know, the visionary behind this, that it's gone on for almost a decade and it's like a cultural phenomenon. Like if you step outside and look at a, a 30,000 foot view of this, it's gotta be pretty damn cool. Yeah. I mean, so I, I took some time on Sunday, the day afterwards, and I just went on Twitter, which was a scary thing and just searched Brooklyn Cyclones. Um, to just get some comments from you're people. You're a brave and man. I know, I know. But I was I, that's how confident I am in what we do on our Seinfeld night. So other than the people who hated us for not getting a bobblehead, um, you know, th th there were people saying things like Seinfeld night with the Brooklyn Cyclones is the most New York City thing in the history of time. And you'll never convince me otherwise. Like that was a tweet from somebody. And I like got chills. Like there's there was another person that's that said, awesome. I have never been to a baseball game in my life and Seinfeld night has ruined me for all baseball for the rest of time. Like <laughs> seeing stuff like that is just like, I mean, that's why we do it. Like you know, we always talk about as a minor league team, you can't control the product on the field and we have to plan to make people entertain, um, you know, whether it's 17 to three or there's rain delays or, you know, we can't control if our team is good or not. Yeah. So being able to do this and seeing people stick around and watch a lane dancing and, run the bases and, uh, you know, come early to get the items and then, you know, participate in all these contests. And um, th that's like as, as good as you can feel as, uh, as a minor league front office person, when you felt like you've done your job. Um, so it is, it's, it's, uh, 
it's awesome. It's it's something that I'm, I'm I'm incredibly proud of. You know, our organization. You know, there's you know 20 of us that 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 put this on, and every single person. You know, we need them in, involved to make it as successful as it's been. The concession stands get slammed because we had our biggest crowd in almost 10 years. So you know, they they need to make it a good experience for people too, and work twice or three times as hard, depending on on the night with you know the usual crowd that we have. So. Um, it's something that I'm incredibly proud of. It's something that our entire organization is incredibly proud of. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's literally like the most perfect night for us, for someone who likes minor league baseball, to see those sort of comments from people and people leaving and having no idea what the score was, but smiling ear to ear and knowing that they had a great time. Um, you know, that's that's really what drives it home for me and makes us know that we're doing our, our jobs here. All right, man. This I'm I'm making the pilgrimage next year. Sam, you gotta you gotta call me on this. We're making this happen next year, and I'm probably gonna drag uh, my buddy Nate uh, out with me as well because we've talked about it since year number one. This is the problem with this interview, though, is you make like one little comment, and then I'm like, I gotta ask questions about that. Like concession stands, you have like a dinky donut, you have a big salad. Are there concessions elements also? Yeah, I mean, we do all that stuff. Uh, we we did we do black and white cookies for desserts. We do beefaroni. <laughs> we did big salads. We did, um, I think this year we did uh, George's Brigand Sandwiches, and we just did like grab-and-go sandwiches. Uh, just there's all sorts. We try to tie in as much stuff as, as, as possible. We, we did, not this year, but we in the past we've done, you know, Bosco and chocolate milk, you know, for, for people. Um, <laughs> you know, we did the, the, on, the, on the rooftop this year, like I said, we had a, a Seinfeld-themed menu, and everything up there was, was connected to the show. So that was cool just to... There was just a table that had junior mints and juji fruits and all that. I was walking by <laughs> on my way to another contest and I just was chugging by myself at how ridiculous this all is. But I was gonna say, are there other competitive elements involved? Like with a with an Elaine dance, that's obviously such a good thing. You could do like you could build little door frames and have see who does the best Kramer entrance. Like I would think there are other things that you could do. Are there other competitions that you've thought about, or is the Elaine dance just so good that you gotta stick with that? No, I mean that that one has to be part of it. We do we do about 15 in between inning or slash pregame contests that are Seinfeld themed. Uh, so this year we did uh, a George uh, ice cream Sunday eating contest. So you couldn't use your hands and it was whoever had the messiest face at the end was the winner. Um, we did a Snickers knife and fork eating contest. Um, we did, I got, um, we had uh, Newman fathead and a Kramer fathead with a bucket in front of them and gave people gumballs and they were spitting off of their face to try to get the, uh, the gumballs into the basket to win. Uh, we did a can't spare a square contest where a person was holding toilet paper on their head and their partner ran around to, to tie them up like a mummy. Um, try, I mean, that's like, that's the most fun part for me is like I lock myself in my office and just binge watch the greatest elves. And I'll write that, oh, we should do this. We should do this. Uh, we've that's done, the world's greatest job. Assignment. Yeah, I, I'm getting paid to do it. And if somebody <laughs> knocks on the door, hey, I watch inside. Go away. No, okay, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Just keep going. Um, we did fishing for marble rye in the past where we have, you know, marble rye that people uh, drop down with the fishing pole and reel back up. We did the same thing with the lobster crate where people tried to wheel up the lobster crate. Uh, we did this year. We did a sponge worthy contest, which was a, a giant soapy sponge that you threw like an Easter egg contest. Like <laughs> I took a step back each time. I mean, this like that's that's the the that's what makes it. I mean, it's all that stuff that people come to see. You know, we our hot dog uh, race that we do this uh, every every game. Uh, one of the mustard 
took off and then chose not to run. So he went back <laughs> and then Ketchup got to the finish line and stopped short. Um, because that's Frank Costanza's move, and then Mustard or uh, Relish went on to win. You know, like all that stuff is what what makes it. I mean, that's that's uh, what what the people here are here to see. They don't care about you know, Jet Williams hit a home run that won the game for us. That's great. You know, Mets top prospect, all this good stuff. <laughs> they they they'd rather see people wrap themselves in toilet paper. For the most I will time. say on the toilet paper note, nothing has made me feel like we are in a post pandemic world more than we can now use rolls of toilet paper for things like wrapping people up as mummies and right. not, uh, you know, hoarding it and uh, and all the things that three years ago, if you were going to explain, like, don't worry, someday on Seinfeld night, the Brooklyn Cyclones will be back to just wrapping people up in toilet paper. It's all going to be fine. I would have derived a lot of confidence and uh, optimism about the future from that. Um, Billy is the last one for me because I swear I could just keep this going for the next eight hours. What would be if you were to look at next year, uh, you know, the 10th anniversary or the the 10th time that you do Seinfeld, what would be like an ultimate get outside of, let's say, you know, getting the big four to show up? Because that I feel like would just be I'd be like the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Like, I don't know if you'd be able to handle it. What yeah. would be something that maybe you haven't gotten yet? a promo or a guest or something that you would love to nail down. That would be like, Oh man, that would be one of the ultimates. I've, I've personally, I've always wanted to get um, putty and do something with him. Um, for the very first year when we did the contest, uh, we, when we did um, Seinfeld night, we had a contest because everything was sold out where if people came with cyclones painted on their chest, they got free tickets. Um <laughs> So like I've always I love putty, the putty character. I think there's a ton of fun things. You know the eight ball jacket. There was a guy walking around this year that was wearing a Devil's jersey and had his face painted. Um, that was in the all you can drink in the backyard. Um, so that's that's something that is. Um, so I've always wanted to do something with him. Newman. We've tried to to reach out to to Wayne Knight and get something with Newman. Um, just because again, there's so many fun things that you yeah. could, could do with Newman. So he's he would be a guy that I would love to get involved with as well. Um, you know, I have the idea a couple of years ago, we wore jerseys that were like Kramer's pimp coat. Um, and we wore those on field. But I think that would be a really cool bobblehead would be, you know, Kramer. That and, would be uh, good. Amazing Technicolor. Dream with coat. that sweet hat with the fur right. on it, the feathers on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what, if I could do anything for next year, just based on what we've done over the, the last 10 years of doing it and, um, and a lane dancing, little kicks bobblehead um you know with like a, a bobblehead and then have a bobble at the knee so you can have the leg kick back and forth um i mean that's that's a dream and like that's would be perfect i think of you know a bookend for when we when we started to where we've come has been a lane dancing contest so that's really in, in my mind I've, that's what i want to do and i really hope that we can make that work all right well that that Tyler kind of stole my question of like, what were you guys going to work on for next year? And I'm sure the wheels are already turning. You're talking about because you and being... I are, we're already mapping out that we're going to be there. Sam. I know we're yeah, on the same right. wavelength with that. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about being on the Bell Parkway, scratching notes, I was just imagining your other arm was painting wider lanes as you were going. Along too. <laughs> for sure. Flaming, yeah, sure. flaming globes of Sigmund. Yeah, there you go. While uh, I'm bringing bottles to Maine because they, it's worth their Michigan because it's worth 10 cents. <laughs> But, uh, you know, this will be the last one and it's it's not that obscure. But, you know, you were talking about before getting the the Yankees affiliate involved and them wearing uniforms. Did you pitch cotton? (laughs) If I knew somebody that made cotton for jerseys, we probably would have done that. Um, That's it's it's not as uh, 
as widely available I guess during the Danny Tartable days. Um, so <laughs> and you only have to wear them one time, right? So we you're not going to gonna wander and right, shrink exactly. them. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying. You know what? It's a very good idea for that. Is a pretty year. good idea. They could be normal jerseys, but if they're cotton, the the crowd would go nuts. For sure, for sure. I'll talk. I'll get on the horn with Wilson and see if we can get that done. There we go. There we go. Well, Billy, thank you so much for for being here and staying as long as you did to take us through this because there's a lot to dig into and it's it's been a lot of fun. So thanks so much for doing this. No, happy to be here. Anytime you guys want to talk about Seinfeld, I'll I'll, I'll jump on the horn for sure. Yeah, maybe don't, in December. We'll just don't give me know. that excuse because <laughs> we'll, we're going to we'll do the next Festivus. twelve episodes. We'll right, have the- Festivus on the show. Come the Festivus, the Festivus episode coming. I've got Beautiful. a, I've got a poll. I'll just put it in the back of this shot. You know, no tinsel. I find tinsel. I got a lot of problems with you, Tyler, and now you're going to hear about it. <laughs> That's the sad thing is it'll actually just be oh. an hour long episode of Sam's airing of grievances against. Me. I was walking around last thing, walking around on the concourse, and there was a guy that was covering the game, and he gave me Kramer's <laughs> and New- Newman's business card. And Kramer's business card from H and H bagels. That is incredible. I was that type of precision is what I expect from people when they come to Seinfeld night. And it was one of the guys that was uh, covering the game. He wrote an article for NBC, and uh, I came up to the press box, and he was like, "Only a guy like you would appreciate this." And he handed it to me, and I was like, "This is perfect. This is exactly what I want from a night like this." That is amazing. People's dedication and to be able to share uh, your shared love and joy of something like that with 8,000 plus other people is so cool. And uh, and you guys should be really proud. Um, Billy, this was awesome, man. Yeah, don't tempt us because we'll, we'll do this again like every week until uh, 2024's edition. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm in. Sounds good. (laughs) We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once made hay while the sun was shining. The others never even left the barn. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Brewster Cinderblocks. B. The Sugar City Anvils. C. The Coffeeville Bricks. 
You're no caffeine-deficient rockhead if you picked C, the Coffeeville Bricks, who lugged their way around the Kansas State League of 1906. A fine town just a stone's throw from the Oklahoma border in Kansas's Montgomery County, Coffeeville carried a heavy load as a producer of glass and bricks in the early 20th century. The city's population grew at industrial speed between 1890 and 1910, increasing from 2,000 to about 12,000 over those two decades. And industry was a big reason why. But ours is not the reason why. Ours is to talk bricks. Coffeeville flirted with a pro baseball team as early as 1896 in a short season independent circuit and in a more ambitious way in 1902. But the attraction was anything but mutual. The Missouri League club it went into the 02 season with abandoned the Berg for Chanute up in Neosho County in June, having gone 9 and 30 to that point. So yes, the Bricks had some heavy lifting to do in terms of winning fans when they arrived four years later. In February of 06, O.H. Baldwin, once a Coffeeville resident who'd gone on to Pittsburgh, Kansas, came to town as a representative of the Kansas State League. He asked Coffeevillians if they were interested in ponying up 100 bones and providing a decent park for the team to play two short seasons. And by spring, Coffeeville's citizens had answered in the affirmative. The players on the Bricks roster were a solid foundation for success, as the team had good building blocks in Ed Foster, who led the league with 44 runs, and Harry Womack, who went 10-0 on the mound. But by midseason, the Bricks were laid up. On June 22nd, the Topeka State Journal ran an item saying that, despite some of the best men being knocked out and unable to play the game, Coffeeville's club was not in danger of folding. The paper reported, The fans feel that when the team is strengthened, Coffeeville will be able to finish the season in the front rank. The fans were right. The Bricks floated up to a 58-50 record, good for fourth place in the eight-team loop. But the Kansas State League folded after that season, and future Coffeeville teams took on similarly industrial but less Masonic monikers, such as the Refiners and the Glassblowers, molding the club's identities like so much clay into an oven. And that's how the Bricks failed to rebound. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams knew how to deal with a pest in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Vermilion Venom Men B. The Sweetwater Swatters C. The Duluth Trappers Want to know the answer? Catch it or kill it! Or tune to the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill wants to go water skiing, and I've got to fill the bathtub. Well, a massive congratulations to your friend and ours, Josh Jackson, who just recorded slash aired episode 100 of uh, Ghosts of the Miners. That means Ghosts of the Miners has been around for almost a quarter of the episodes of the show before the show. And it still, to me, feels like, ah, we got this fun new segment, Ghosts of the Miners. We're 100 <laughs> episodes into it now. 
I know we have to introduce ghosts. Is it like make sure you stay? I, mean, I guess we didn't do that this week, but you guys know that it's a it's going to yeah. be there. That Josh yeah. is going to be there for you. Uh, and you know, I went several hours to spend time with Josh, but you guys get to do that every week. Yeah, ghosts of the miners. So it's just the greatest. Lucky he you. Works, he works his tail off on Ghosts of the Miners. We may see some tweaks to Ghosts of the Miners. Josh is he's constantly percolating. I'm percolating, Jerry. Uh and he's he's got some new concepts, so we may uh see some fun exciting new stuff with Ghosts of the Miners, but 100 episodes uh and when you think about, you know, 100 episodes they are all roughly 4 minutes long, whatever it is. That's 400 minutes of Josh's life and he probably spends five times each episode just writing the script. That doesn't even research count the research that doesn't count. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like he, Josh works his friggin' tail off on Ghost of the Miners. So a huge thanks to him. Uh, huge thanks also to Billy Harner of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Um, I'm already looking at uh, you know, mid-August weekends of next year and uh wondering when I can nail down a trip to to Brooklyn to be in the house for a, a Seinfeld night. Um, and before we get out of here, uh, no Benjamin Hill, obviously, for uh our promo promo. Uh, which generally closes out. But we do have game promos to close out this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV and MLB.TV, of course, where you can stream and watch the best in minor league baseball. Sam, who you got? What are you watching this week? Yeah, so we were talking earlier about guys moving up to double A and Ethan Solis and Dylan Cruz have already debuted as of this recording on Wednesday. Paul Skeens hasn't. He's scheduled to make his double A debut on Saturday. Um, So that, that game starts at 6 p.m., for Altoona, they will be going up against the Akron Rubber Ducks and some Cleveland Guardians prospects. Uh, Juan Brito, uh, the number six prospect in the Guardian system, a guy I'm I'm pretty excited about and interested to see how he goes up against Skeens. Brito has a really good hit tool, um, so that could be iron sharpening iron on that one. Uh, it might not be a long one. Like I said, it, he's only gone two innings at most so far in the minor leagues as the the Pirates are just trying to get him into the rhythm of starting, um, but not trying to waste too many bullets after he pitched so much at LSU in the spring. But anytime you get to see Paul Skeens and, and check in on his velocity and check in on the, the slider, uh, it could be really, really special stuff. So tune in to that one Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern time, Akron against Altoona, and catch you uh, Paul Skeens' double-A debut. Tyler, what are you watching? So uh, a guy who is now toward the back end of the top 100, but has come with some of the loftiest prospect uh, comparisons and expectations really of all time uh, and kind of quietly, at least uh, in terms of our discussion this week, was promoted to AAA. Uh, Yankees outfield prospect Jason Dominguez is now up with the AAA Scranton-Wilkesbury Rail Riders. Uh, did get a hit in his AAA debut. Uh, he is now at the AAA level three for six uh, through game number one, uh, knocked his, his first, uh, contest out of the way in the international league. And, uh, he and his team will be home, uh, taking on Lehigh Valley for the rest of the week. Uh, three for six, three runs batted in and a run scored, uh, trip, terrific start to the triple a stay for Jason Dominguez. It's been a little while since he's been kind of that guy who drew the Mike Trout and Bo Jackson, and Mickey Mantle comparisons, but what's crazy about it is he's 20 years old. Like he is still, Jason Dominguez is still ahead of the curve for where you would expect a 20 year old talented prospect to be. 
step away from the big leagues now um, and something for Yankees fans to be uh, excited about and what has been obviously a, a kind of challenging year by Yankee standards. So uh, give Jason Dominguez a watch. And uh, this weekend he will be taking on the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs along with the rest of those Rail Riders teammates on MILB.TV. Um, what a fun episode, this week's episode of the show before the show. Huge thanks to Billy Harner. Huge thanks to Josh Jackson, of course, for stopping by. And for the absentee Benjamin Hill and our own Sam Dykstra. My name is Tyler Mon, and we'll catch you next week.